I need to admit one thing before I dive into today's episode. I can't really tell you in my own words what our very accomplished guest has achieved in his career, not in any detail. And that's because I am not conversant, surprise, surprise, in astrophysics and cosmology, and no amount of Googling can save me. What I can tell you broadly is that Martin Rees has contributed a good deal to our current understanding of the universe. I think when the uh, history of science is written, one of the highlights is going to be understanding the place of our Earth in the broader cosmos and setting the whole Earth and the whole solar system in a grand evolutionary scheme, tracing right back to the time when the whole universe was only a second old. It's amazing that we can talk with a straight face about this, but I think we can. Martin Rees, since the 1960s, has worked to understand quasars, black holes, the Big Bang, and the mysterious period between the Big Bang and the emergence of stars. He is Astronomer Royal of England, top dog in other words, and has been since 1995. He's the former president of the Royal Society, the UK's National Science Academy. He's a former master of Trinity College at Cambridge, and hey, he's also been knighted and elevated to the House of Lords. He's even got an asteroid named after him. The list of prizes and publications could take up the whole podcast, but I'll leave it at this. Lord Martin Rees is a big think kind of guy who ponders the history of the universe going back billions of years and the future of our planet and the humans who live here. Science deepens our sense of mystery and wonder about the world around us, but also it allows us to change the world around us, and we've got to make sure we change it in benign ways and minimize the downsides. And so that's been something I've been concerned about, certainly in the last decade or two. So here we go, to infinity and beyond, and back down to Earth, on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide Today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. I once met a famous Indian tycoon. He heard I was astronomer royal, and he said, do you do the Queen's horoscopes? And I said with a straight face, well, if she wants one, I'm the person she'd ask. <laughs> he took it seriously and uh, asked me my predictions. I said, trouble in the Middle East, stock market will fluctuate and things like that. <laughs> he listened solemnly, but then I came clean. I said, I'm just a scientist. And he then lost all interest in my predictions. <laughs> and rightly so, because scientists are rotten forecasters almost as bad as economists. 
I'm going to make a few forecasts about the coming decades, but very tentatively. One thing I didn't mention in my intro is that Martin Rees is the founder of the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge University. The website says they are scientists and experts from all different disciplines dedicated, quote, to the study and mitigation of risks that could lead to human extinction or civilizational collapse. And Reese's latest book, just out as I record this, is called On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. So he's got a lot on his mind besides Milky Ways and Rings of Saturn. But let's start with the science and wend our way to the existential angst. Martin Rees wasn't destined for science. His parents, both school teachers, weren't scientists. And as he told Gail Eichenthal, who interviewed him for the Academy of Achievement in 1999 and again in 2017, he was just as likely to become an economist when he was choosing his path in the early 1960s. But science allowed him to avoid studying Latin and German, and that, he thinks, was half of what drove him into the loving arms of physics, that and an inspiring professor at Cambridge. And after a year, I realized that was a good decision, not only because I had a wonderful mentor, but also because this was a time in the uh, mid-1960s when astronomy is opening up. For the first time, we had evidence for black holes, that there was a big bang in the universe, and that we could understand how the universe evolved. And it's always good in a subject to be in at the beginning, because then the old guys have no big advantage over the young guys, and so you can make a mark fairly quickly. And I was quite lucky in that sense. I might have been equally happy doing economics, but I've been very fortunate to have uh, had a ringside seat for many of the exciting developments in astronomy over most of my career. But actually what's made me feel even luckier over my career is that the rate of discovery has not declined at all. Within the last few years, we've had discovering planets around other stars, an entirely new field that makes the night sky far more interesting, and also gravitational waves from space and all kinds of things. We can now address questions that couldn't even have been posed 40 years ago. Martin Rees doesn't like taking credit. He describes his own contributions as entirely collaborative. He's not the guy out there with a telescope. He's a theoretician who synthesizes the disparate data gathered by others. And he says over these many decades, he's never had one of those big, cliche, aha moments. I think uh, if you analyze scientists, there are really two types of scientists. There are those who do uh, one big thing and those who uh, contribute a lot of ideas along the way. There's an old Greek saying, the um, fox knows many things and the hedgehog knows one big thing. And in that sense, I'm uh, a fox rather than a hedgehog in that I haven't had any one single great idea. Most of my career in doing astrophysics has involved trying to interpret a lot of mysterious observations and trying to put them together to try and make sense of them. And that's my preferred style of thinking. It's very much a cooperative effort I wouldn't want to highlight my own contributions too much. Uh, it's, a very, it's very much a cooperative effort, uh, anything in science. And also, in my particular subject, I think the real heroes are the observers, because uh, people who devise an instrument and make an observation of some incredibly distant objects 
billions of light years away, they're the ones who I think deserve far more credit than those of us who try to make sense of it all. Over the past 50 years, Gail Eichenthal wanted to know, what have been the major setbacks? Well, many of my ideas have been proved wrong, of course, but that's uh, uh, normal for most scientists. Uh, I think uh, because I've tended to work on many things rather than one thing, uh, I've never had tremendous emotional investment or investment of time in any single idea. So I've been spared the uh, uh, trauma which some scientists have if they sometimes find that 10 years of work is wasted. I've never spent 10 years on any single thing, so I've never had a such a big investment in anything. And so uh, for that reason, I've tended to sort of uh, hedge my bets. And in fact, sometimes I've done something which many scientists think is unusual, which is to work simultaneously on two contradictory theories. Uh, And this seems to me a reasonable thing, because if we try to explain some new phenomenon and we don't know which theory is right, then what we should do is we should explore the consequences of A and B, and uh, perhaps by exploring their consequences, we can show that A leads to some contradiction and B doesn't, or learn more about them. And so I want to know the answer, and often the right way to do that is to uh, explore two different ideas and see which works out best. Let's back up here for a moment and remember where the field of astrophysics was in the 1960s when Martin Rees entered it. Einstein had offered up a new way of looking at gravity and space and time in 1915, but it was a theory. It would take decades for technology to advance enough to allow scientists to look for proof. More powerful telescopes, better ways of registering faint light, and space probes. Those provided the first evidence that Einstein was right about, well, pretty much everything, including black holes. And that's the ferment Martin Rees stepped into as a young scientist. So I would say that over the last 50 years, Einstein's theory has been vindicated. 50 years ago, um, there were only a few tests of it, which weren't very precise, and they only applied when it was weak. But now I think we've got very strong reasons for believing that it is the right insight into uh, space and time, and uh, black holes are governed by the equations of Einstein, and also that the uh, early Big Bang, which set our universe expanding, was governed by those same equations. So we do have a very good theory which explains gravity and the large-scale structure of the universe. My spies tell me that you have books of Einstein in your study. Talk about your own uh, relationship to Einstein and perhaps your, your estimation of him. <laughs> yes. Um, well, of course, I, I, I never met him. Uh, he died in 1955. And uh, uh, I think he, he is really rather special in the history of science because there's an interesting contrast between creativity in the arts and the sciences. I mean, in the arts, um, whether you're outstanding or just average, your work has individuality, but it may not last. If you're a scientist, in most cases, your your work may last. You've added one brick to the edifice of public knowledge, but it doesn't have individuality. If you hadn't done it, someone else would have done it. And that's true of almost all of science. And uh, Einstein is almost an exception to that, in that if Einstein hadn't existed, the ideas that we now associate with him would have gradually emerged. 
but it would have taken much longer. So he made a far more distinctive imprint in that he was motivated not by some kind of observations. The ideas weren't already in the air as they normally are when science uh, advances, but it was pure thought that led him to this. And had it not been for Einstein, it would have been maybe decades before we had uh, an equivalent theory of gravity. So in most cases, it doesn't really matter because if, if A doesn't do something, B will, soon will. And uh, uh, one of my favorite scientific authors is uh, Peter Medawar, and he had a lovely statement in one of his books where he, he expressed this contrast by, by saying that uh, when Wagner took 10 years off in the middle of the ring cycle to compose uh, Meistersingers and Tristan, he didn't think that someone was going to scoop him. And so that's the big difference between uh, creativity in the arts and in sciences. I think we can all stipulate that Einstein was in some special art science category all his own. But that doesn't take anything away from Martin Rees's immense contributions to the field, humble as he is about them. One of the things Rees is best known for is his insight into quasars, which were at first thought to be some very extreme kind of star. They're not. In fact, they put out more light than an entire galaxy of stars, but are much, much more compact. Reese was one of the first people to ask, how could that be? Now, this is where I bow out and let Lord Reese do the talking. Well, we know that the basic large-scale constituents of the universe are galaxies, like our Milky Way, it's containing about 100 billion stars. But we also know that these entities, which are basically apparently stars orbiting around a central hub are centered around a black hole in the center of the galaxy. And that black hole is often quiescent. There's one in our Milky Way, which weighs about four million times as much as the sun, uh, but other galaxies have these in them. And if they are just quiescent, we don't see them, but if gas falls into them, then the gas swirls in and gets magnetized and very hot. And that gas in falling into the black hole releases far more energy than the 100 billion stars in the galaxy. So the brightest objects we see when we look with our telescope in the universe are these so-called quasars, where the light of all the stars is outshone by this central concentrated light associated with the black hole. And this is important in itself because it allows us to study extreme conditions where gravity is very strong, but also it allows us to probe further out in the universe and therefore further back in the past. Because the further out you look in the universe, the longer the light's taken to get to us and therefore the further you're looking back in the past. And so the fact that these quasars are so bright has made it possible for us to actually uh, understand uh, what the universe was like, not merely now, but one billion, two billion, three billion, and up to 12 billion years ago by looking at these quasars. And this therefore means that if we want to try and understand how our universe has evolved and how from some big bang it eventually turned into the complex cosmos we are part of, we can do better than geologists. We can look not just at fossils of the past, but we can actually observe the past because when we look far away, we are looking back. So we can actually see what galaxies were like at different stages in their development. 
I remember growing up as a child and you know hearing them talk about the, the sun and the moon and here are the planets. Mm -hmm. End of story. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, lot, a lot bigger, obviously, because we know that uh, our sun is one of a hundred billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, and our Milky Way galaxy is one of about a hundred billion galaxies that we can see out to the limits of our telescope. And incidentally, though it's more speculative, I personally think that um, physical reality is vastly more extensive still than the region we can observe. So there's been a huge expansion in scale, but I think What's been even more important is the ability to observe in different wave bands and with greater sensitivity. That's how we've come to uh, map out the universe in more detail and understand more about the uh, physics of the stars and planets and galaxies within it. Before we leave astronomy, um, what do you think is the next frontier? And are we working on it? I think there are two basic frontiers. One is to push back to the very, very early universe. Um, we understand with a great deal of confidence what happened in the Big Bang after the first microsecond was over. Because after the first microsecond, the conditions in the universe were no more extreme than we can simulate in the lab. So we have fairly good evidence for what happened from a millisecond after the Big Bang, a microsecond after the Big Bang, to the present. But if we try and extrapolate back further to the first tiny, tiny fraction of a second, then the conditions in terms of density and temperature and energy were more extreme than we can simulate, and therefore we lose our foothold in empirical physics. And therefore things are more uncertain. And uh, we would like to have a theory which allows us to uh, be more confident about those very early stages. Incidentally, that theory is a special challenge because it will involve um, achieving one of the summits of 21st century science, which hasn't yet been reached, which is to unify Einstein's theory of gravity with the quantum principle. Einstein's gravity applies to things on the cosmic scale, stars and planets, etc., and the quantum theory applies to the micro-world of atoms. And uh, we have no theory that combines those two. That doesn't matter in most of science, because if you're a chemist, you don't have to worry about the gravitational effect between different atoms in a molecule. It's very weak. On the other hand, if you're an astronomer, you don't need to worry about the quantum fuzziness in the orbit of a planet because it's so big that that's negligible. But if we want to understand the very beginning of the universe, when the entire observable universe could have been squeezed to microscopic size, then clearly we need a theory which is going to incorporate gravity and also incorporate the quantum principle. And that's what we don't yet have. And so one of the challenges, obviously, is to take more steps towards reaching that summit of a unified theory because only then will we be able to have a firmer view for what happened in the very early beginning. So that's one frontier. Another quite different uh, area of astronomy, which is developing fast, is um, uh, looking for planets around other stars. The night sky has become hugely more interesting in the last 10 or 20 years, because we now know that most of the stars you see in the sky are not just points of light. They're surrounded by residues of planets, 
just as the sun is surrounded by the earth and the other familiar planets. And until 20 years ago, we had no evidence for this. But now we know that most stars have planets around them and that in our galaxy, there are probably a billion planets rather like the earth in the sense of having orbits um, where water could exist and being about the size of the earth. And this is fascinating to study and of course motivates the thought of whether life could have emerged and evolved on these. So the subject of exobiology, trying to understand these planets and to see if there's evidence for uh, life on them is I think going to be really exciting. At the moment um, the planets are only really inferred indirectly by looking at the star they're orbiting around and seeing their effect on this star, making it a bit dimmer if they transit in front of it or causing a wobble due to their gravity. But with the next generation of telescopes, we'll be able to actually analyze the light from the planets themselves and that'll tell us whether they have a biosphere, um, whether there's evidence for oxygen, water vapor and things like that. And that's going to be very exciting. And of course, um, we want to understand the origin of life because even though we understand how Darwinian selection allowed over four billion years simple life in the young Earth to evolve into the complex biosphere of which we're a part, we don't yet understand how life began here on Earth in the sense of what triggered the transition from complex chemistry to the first replicating, metabolizing systems that we call alive. Serious people are working on that and uh, I hope they'll make progress. And if they make progress, they'll tell us two other things. It'll tell us, was this such a rare fluke that it wouldn't have happened elsewhere? Or would we expect it to have happened on these other Earth-like planets? And secondly, it'll tell us whether the DNA-RNA basis of life on Earth is uniquely special, as it were, or whether there could be life based on quite different chemistry, maybe even without water. We don't know those questions. So that's a fascinating um, uh, frontier of astronomy and science. And so I would say there are three frontiers of science. There's the very small, the quantum world, the very large, the cosmic world, and we want to unify those to understand the Big Bang. But there's a third frontier of science, which is a very complicated world. And that's the everyday world, especially of biological things. And, um, and that's quite different because the challenge there is to understand complexity. Biologists aren't held up by not understanding subnuclear physics or by not understanding Einstein's theory. Uh, they're held up because even the smallest organism is far more complicated than an atom or a star. Scientists believe life first emerged on Earth nearly 45 million centuries ago, about half a billion years after the Earth itself formed. But Martin Rees is worried, as a scientist and as a citizen, that it could all go awry in just a hundred years' time. Well, this is the first century in those 45 million where one species, one dominant species, namely us, can control the planet's future. And that's important because astronomers know that although there have been 45 million centuries in the past, the sun is less than halfway through its life. So there are another 60 million centuries to come before the sun dies. And indeed, the expanding universe may go on forever. So we are um, less than halfway through the life of our solar system. But even in this huge time perspective, extending 
hundreds of uh, millions of years in the past and the future, this century is indeed special because it's the first when one species, the human species, can determine the future because we are dominant on this planet and we have huge numbers of people with powerful technology. And I do worry about whether we will get through this century without severe setbacks. And I think there are two different classes of risk we need to worry about. The first is the category which we are imposing collectively because there are more of us on this planet, a growing population, and each of us is more demanding of energy and resources. There are now nearly seven and a half billion people on the planet. There'll be nine billion by mid-century. We're not sure what will happen after that. It could go up even more. But also, we are all more demanding in terms of energy and resources. And of course, we hope that the uh, developing world um, will close the gap with uh, more fortunate countries like ours. And that will, of course, increase the, uh, the pressure on energy and resources. So there's a risk that this is going to lead to despoilation of the environment. Um, climate change that could have severe long-term effects and to uh, uh, disruption of ecologies leading to mass extinctions. And of course, those will be irreversible degradations of our environment. So we will not be leaving an environment for future generations as good as the one we inherited. So that's a serious concern, our collective effects. But there's a different kind of concern which also worries me, which is that because of powerful technologies, in particular um, biotech and cybertech and AI, individuals are much more empowered than they were in the past. And that therefore means that an individual or a small group can, by error or by design, have a consequence, a damaging consequence, that could cascade globally. I like to say that the uh, global village will have its village idiots, but they will now have a global range. And this is something which worries me very much. Uh, the uh, new technologies are very exciting. And of course, we depend on new technology in order to feed 9 billion people and to provide a good life for them all. So uh, we don't want to slow down technology, but we do want to redirect it and control it if we can, so as to minimize these serious risks because we are in an interconnected world where a disaster in one region will cascade around the world. No part of the world is isolated from what happens elsewhere now. And so uh, we need to be very concerned. And uh, that is why I do worry about how we will get through this century without severe setbacks. Why do you think climate change is so uh, politicized and therefore um, dif more difficult to address? I think climate change raises special problems because, first of all, the science is still rather uncertain. Everyone agrees that the uh, um, temperature on average is going up and that, more importantly, that rise in temperature is going to trigger big global change in weather patterns. The regions where you have the monsoons, where you have droughts, etc., will change. And this will be a disruptive effect on the climate far more rapid than any natural changes in climate that have happened in the past. Um, but of course these timescales, although very 
short in an astronomical context, are long in a political context. And we're talking about what will happen um, in the next few decades and what might uh, make the lives of, uh, uh, of people now just born, who'd be alive in the 22nd century, worse than they are now. And it's very hard to persuade politicians to do something now, which will not benefit the here and now, between now and the next election, but will have an effect on the uh, lives of uh, uh, children now born who will be alive at the end of the century, and also on the lives of people in remote parts of the world who will be more affected than we are in Europe and North America. So that's why it's difficult to deal with, um, because obviously the focus of most action is the, um, the urgent and the parochial rather than the uh, long term. And uh, uh, for that reason, um, I think it's very hard to keep dealing with climate change high on the agenda. I personally think we should be prepared to pay an insurance premium now, as it were, to uh, uh, remove a potentially serious risk from the lives of future generations. Um, but it's hard to, to, to make that point. We've got to think of ways in which uh, uh, we can keep that on the agenda. And I'd like to say two things about that. Um, one is that uh, one uh, policy which I think we can realistically adopt and get countries to accept is to pursue accelerated research and development into all forms of carbon-free energy. Because those involve exciting new technology and give a boost to the nation of development first. And the faster the development proceeds, the sooner will the cost come down. So that, for instance, India, which clearly needs to have new sources of power to replace uh, uh, stoves burning wood and dung, which is hugely damaging environmentally, they'll be able to afford clean energy and not build coal-fired power stations. So we've got to accelerate the R&D so clean energy is as cheap as coal-fired power stations, and then, without any uh, further incentive, India and other countries will go directly clean energy, leapfrogging the phase when they have huge fossil fuel power stations. So developing clean energy as quickly as possible is a sort of win-win situation for the world. So that should be a priority. And the amount of R&D in those areas is very small compared to defence R&D, for instance, and medical R&D. And why shouldn't it be comparable? Indeed, I would say that uh, one of the most inspirational goals for young engineers should be to provide clean and affordable energy for the developing as well as the developed world. That would be a very exciting development. So that's one thing. But the other thing we can do is really to persuade politicians that they should think about long-term questions. So let's suppose that astronomers had found evidence that there was an asteroid heading for the Earth and that we calculated it might hit the Earth in the year 2100. That's 83 years from now. And suppose we could say that with 10% confidence, not with certainty. What would the reaction of the public be? Well, would we say, well, in 50 years' time, we'll have better technology to deal with it. Um, it may miss us anyway, so let's do nothing now. I don't think we would. I think if that were the case, we would do our damnedest starting now to see what we could do to make sure that we could somehow deflect it or minimize its impact. And here I see an analogy with climate change, because uh, climate change is uncertain, but what we can say is that there is indeed 
a credible threat that by the year 2100, climate change will have triggered irreversible tipping points, rather like the melting of Greenland's ice, which will eventually raise sea level by about seven or eight meters, and also cause huge global change in climate. We can't be sure, but that's likely. Um, and my view is that we should already be prepared to pay an insurance premium to reduce that risk. Now, we shouldn't say, well, 50 years from now, people will be richer and they will have better technology. Let's leave it to them. We should start now. And I think uh, the analogue of the asteroid indicates that it is worth paying an insurance premium now to eliminate a risk, even if it's an uncertain risk. We shouldn't just say it may not happen. We shouldn't say that they can deal with it better in 50 years than we can now. We should already start to see what we can do about it. I keep thinking of a little uh, a line in a poem, which is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. A whimper yes. As Reese likes to say, there's no planet B. That's why he got a collection of top thinkers in science, philosophy, and law to join him in starting the Center for the Study of Existential Risk to examine not only climate change, but also, as Reese has mentioned, the dangers lurking in artificial intelligence and bio and cyber technology. Yes. Um, well, of course, cyber attacks are becoming very, uh, very serious, and they're an example of how just one person can produce uh, a really major disruption by disrupting electric power grids and, and things like that. And um, this is a new kind of warfare if nations engage in it, but even an individual could cause pretty serious damage. And similarly with uh, bio threats, the new techniques, for instance, to make the influenza virus more virulent and more transmissible, these have been developed in a few years, a few years ago, and um, uh, in 2014, the American federal government stopped funding research into these because it was thought to be a dangerous knowledge and uh, a risk of the viruses escaping, etc. So that's an example where there's a new technique. And of course, we've got the wonderful new gene editing techniques, CRISPR-Cas9, uh, which has huge benefits, but also could have unintended consequences. Um, if so-called gene drive is used to make species extinct and have, that has one of their consequences. So there's a big risk of these things. Now, quite rightly, there are lots of discussions within scientific academies and elsewhere about how to regulate these new technologies, particularly bio, modeled on in the early days of recombinant DNA when the uh, researchers agreed to a moratorium and to uh, follow certain guidelines. And in that spirit, there have been in the last two or three years similar gatherings of, of uh, academicians and experts. But things are different this time. They're different because uh, far more nations are involved, it's far more widespread, and also there's much stronger commercial pressure, which there wasn't 40 years ago. There was no biotech industry. And for that reason, I think whatever guidelines we have and feel should be adopted on prudential or ethical grounds, enforcing them is going to be very hard. I would say it's going to be as hopeless to enforce them globally as it is to enforce the drug laws or the tax laws. 
and we've had precious little success in enforcing either of those. And this I find very scary. And the point is that the equipment that is needed is very modest. I mean, cyber attacks just need access to the internet and uh, the techniques needed for some of these uh, uh, gene modification techniques um, is available in university labs and industry, etc. Um, it's not like uh, nuclear, where you can't uh, build a nuclear weapon in your, in your garage. It's got to be conspicuous and therefore it's feasible to uh, have inspection and monitoring uh, of uh, nuclear developments. Okay. We can't do that in these cases. And so my worry is that whatever can be done in the bio and cyber area will be done somewhere by someone. And I don't know what we can do to eliminate that risk. We can certainly try and reduce it. And I think we should focus very hard on ways to reduce it, to have surveillance, etc. Although there again, there's going to be a tension between um, security, freedom and privacy if we want to try and uh, guard against individual lone wolves, as it were, misusing this technology. But I think it's something we do need to worry about. And it has struck me and some of my colleagues that there's not enough attention given to these uh, threats. We want to use the technology optimally and minimise its downsides. And the stakes are getting higher as these techniques get more, more powerful. Um, and um, that, that's why I think it's very important uh, to ensure that um, experts focus on uh, how to uh, assess which of these uh, scenarios can be dismissed as science fiction and which are sufficiently real that we ought to think about them and address how we can minimize their impact. And not enough people are doing this. There's far less attention given to these sort of potentially existential risks than to very small risks. There are huge numbers of people thinking about the dangers of carcinogens in food, um, low radiation doses, uh, making planes safer, avoiding train crashes and things of that kind. Um, but the amount of attention given to these high consequence, low probability events, whose probability is rising all the time as technology gets higher, is very low. Was there um, a time in your career when you realized that um, your responsibility as a scientist should lead you to speak out more about these issues than to stay in the lab and look mm -hmm. at a microscope or telescope. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I think back in the 1980s, I was quite involved in the pugwash movement for nuclear disarmament, and I was a member of campaigns for nuclear disarmament and things like that. And so I spoke and wrote quite a bit about the, uh, the nuclear threat back then. And I had the privilege through those activities of getting to know some of the most impressive people I ever met, who are some of the uh, physicists who worked at Los Alamos during World War II on the bomb. But then they returned to civilian and academic life afterwards. And felt an obligation to do all they could to control the powers they had helped unleash. I'm thinking of people like Joseph Rothblatt, Hans Bethe, Vicky Weisskopf, and people like that, really great men, sadly, no longer with us. And I think they set an example for scientists in any area of science that has societal ramifications, which is that um, even if you are primarily an academic scientist, 
you should be concerned about the application of your work. You may not yourself do the exploitation of the work, but uh, uh, you should uh, be concerned to ensure that if your work has beneficial applications, someone exploits them, and if it has dangerous applications, efforts are made to, uh, to reduce their, their risk. And uh, that is uh, now um, a responsibility which I think falls not just on the nuclear scientists, as it did from 70 years ago onwards, but on the scientists involved in these other new techniques, particularly um, microbiology, genetics, artificial intelligence, and cyber techniques. And so I think it's very important that they should be engaged. Of course, scientists should realize that they are only experts in the technology when we get to um, other issues um, which are involved then political and economic and ethical concerns come in and scientists are just citizens in those areas. So scientists shouldn't uh, be the decision makers in how their work is used, but they have a special responsibility to ensure the public is informed. Um, and it's, it's rather like an analogy which my colleague Michael Atier gives. It's like if you've got teenage kids, um, you can't necessarily control what they do but you're a poor parent if you don't care what they do and what happens to them. Likewise, if you're a scientist, the ideas you come up with are your creations, as it were, and so you ought to care about what use is made of them in the same way, even if you can't control it. And so in the same way, I think scientists ought to, ought to care and, uh, and should try and inform the public and inform politicians. And incidentally, if um, the public is to um, be an informed citizenry, Everyone needs to have some feel for science because so many of the issues which confront us today, whether it's health, energy, or environment, or transport, they have a scientific dimension. So if the public debate is to rise above the uh, level of slogans, everyone needs to understand a bit about the science. And the scientists themselves should take a lead in ensuring that the, that happens. For the past several decades, Martin Rees may have applied his significant brain power to worrying about the future and trying to save us from ourselves. But his picture is not all gloom and doom. As a cosmologist, he still got a sense of wonder at his core and takes the long view. I mean the really long view. And that lets him consider some better scenarios for the future, too. So we'll end this episode by listening to part of the talk he gave in 2017 at the Academy of Achievements International Summit in the English countryside. But there are some real optimists around. The futurologist Ray Kurzweil, who now works for Google, he argues that once machines get up to human capabilities, they'll then design even better ones themselves. We have an intelligence explosion, what he calls a singularity. But he's worried this may not happen in his lifetime, he's in his 60s. So he takes 100 pills a day, and he wants his body frozen by a company in Arizona. When he dies, and then when immortality is on offer, he wants to be resurrected or have his brain downloaded. Well, uh, there are people who believe this. I was interviewed by a society in California called the Society for the Abolition of Involuntary Death. And they support all this. And I upset them because I said, I'd rather end my days in an English churchyard than an American refrigerator. 
Mm. And I was very surprised when I got home to, that three of my academic colleagues had paid for this. Uh, two had paid the full whack, one the cut price just to have his head frozen. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I'm glad that they were from, from Oxford and not my university of Cambridge. <laughs> But of course, uh, more seriously, uh, dramatic life extension may happen, and that will be uh, crucially important for population trends, if nothing else. But my expert interest is in space, and it's beyond the Earth that cyborg and AI technologies will have their most spectacular scope. So a word about that. Just last month, we heard of the Cassini spacecraft, which plunged into Saturn after giving us a cornucopia of information about that planet and its rings and its moons. It's more than 20 years since Cassini started its journey. And when we realize how spectacularly smartphones and robots have advanced in the 20 years, we realize that we could do far better now than the amazing things Cassini did with 1990s technology. And I think during this century, the whole solar system will be explored by flotillas of miniaturized probes, far more advanced than Cassini. And giant robotic fabricators may assemble lightweight structures in space, huge gossamer-thin radio reflectors, solar energy collectors, and such like, maybe using raw materials mined from the moon or asteroids. But what about human spaceflight, which, of course, has languished for decades since the great high point of the uh, moon landings. Robotic and AI advances are eroding the practical case for sending people into space. Nonetheless, I hope people will follow the robots, though they will do this as adventurers, not for practical goals. And we should specially acclaim the private enterprise efforts in space. Elon Musk's SpaceX, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin and the rest because they can tolerate higher risks than a Western government can impose on publicly funded civilian astronauts, and thereby cut costs compared to NASA or ESA. And I think that later this century, courageous thrill-seekers, people in the mould of, say, Felix Baumgarten, who fell supersonically from a high-altitude balloon, and crazy people like that, they may well establish bases independent from the Earth, on Mars or maybe on asteroids. And Elon Musk himself, who's now 46 years old, says he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. <laughs> and he might make it. But don't ever expect mass emigration from Mars. I think it's a dangerous delusion to think that space offers an escape from Earth's problems. You've got to solve them here. Coping with climate change is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. And nowhere in our solar system offers an environment even as clement as the Antarctic or the top of Everest. There's no planet B for ordinary, risk-averse people. But I think our descendants here on Earth should cheer on these space adventurers, the people like Baumgartner, because they will have a pivotal role, I think, in spearheading what I call the post-human future. Space, even Mars, is a very hostile environment for humans. So these pioneers will have far more incentive than us to redesign themselves. They'll harness the super-powerful genetic and cyborg technology that we'll have in the coming decades. These techniques will be heavily regulated, I hope, on Earth, but 
these people will be far beyond the clutches of the regulators. So it's these adventurous spacefarers, not those of us comfortably adapted to life on Earth, who will spearhead a post-human era, evolving within a few centuries into a new species. Organic beings like us want a planetary surface and gravity. But if post-humans make the transition to fully inorganic intelligence, they may prefer zero-g, especially for constructing massive artifacts. So it's in deep space that non-biological brains may develop powers that humans can't even imagine. So even if intelligence were now unique to the Earth, it needn't remain a cosmic sideshow. Embodied in generations of self-improving machines, advancing by, as it were, intelligent design, not Darwinian selection, it could, in future eons, spread far beyond the solar system. Interstellar voyages hold no terrors if you're nearly immortal. And I should mention, as an astronomer, um, I'm aware that we have billions of years in the past that have led to humans. Most people are aware of that. But fewer are aware that the timeline ahead is at least as long. We may be not even the halfway stage of evolution. It'll be six billion years before the sun flares up and dies. And the expanding universe may go on forever. And to quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. That's Lord Martin Rees, astrophysicist, cosmologist, and asker of the really big questions. He's also England's Astronomer Royal and the founder of the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. He's author of many books, including most recently, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. You can find more about him at achievement.org. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.